This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored welcome to another exciting episode of literary tracks your official star trek books and comics podcast here on the trek fm network i am just one of the hosts here my name is bruce gibson and with me as he's been for gosh i don't even know how long i've been doing the show four years five years something like that but he's been here every time i've been here dan gunther Hey, Bruce. Uh, I looked recently because I actually put it on my Indeed resume that I was a host of Literary Treks on Trek FM. I'm not sure for you exactly, but I've been doing this for five years and seven months as of this month. So uh, it's been a little while for sure. And you weren't very long after me. So yeah, I'm now really curious to know how long I have been on it because I'm going to try to look it up real quick as we're talking. Um, I created a episode tracking grid for myself when I joined the show because I wanted to make sure that we didn't duplicate things that we've done before here on the show. So what I'm seeing here is I came on as a guest co-host for several episodes. The first time of that was April of 2016. And then I officially joined permanently in July of 2016. So yes, it's been four years. Wow. It's feels longer than that though (laughs) (laughs) i was gonna say for me it doesn't feel like it's been over five years but i don't know i guess it's been quite a while well i guess it felt it feels longer for me because i feel like i've been here as long as you but you've been here longer so i don't know i'm confused right now i'm so confused anyway one of the reasons we're talking about how long we've been doing literary treks is because that's coming to an end and i know that Some of you are like, what? Okay, Bruce is trying to be funny. You're joking around again, but that's not true. Dan and I are leaving literary treks. Now, before you start freaking out, it's all good. You know, the books are still out there and the podcasts are still out there. And let me explain what this means. So we're here in episode number 306. We're going to stick around for two more episodes of literary treks. So our last will be on the release on August 2nd of episode 308. Then we will leave Literary Treks, 
And uh, we have a new podcast called Positively Trek. So you can check us out there. So we still exist. We're still around. If you like these voices that you hear, you can still get them by subscribing to Positively Trek. Now, just to add to that, we will continue doing books. It's in our veins. We will continue <laughs> doing comics. There, That's in our veins, too. But we're going to do more than just that, which we can't do on literary treks because it's only just about the books and comics. But we will give you just as much, if not more, books and comics that we have done here on literary treks in addition to some other things that are Star Trek related on the Positively Trek podcast. Absolutely. And yeah, so our Positively Trek podcast the main show comes out weekly but as far as the books and comics go we're absolutely going to keep up the same schedule that we've done here on literary treks and uh, you guys have become used to a new episode coming every two weeks we will doing we will be doing the same on positively trek we will have a new episode about the books and comics coming out every two weeks that may change here and there for other big events in the star trek universe but going forward that is currently the plan so there will be no slowdown whatsoever of us talking about the books and comics if you've enjoyed me and bruce talking about them over the years please follow us on over to positively trek and we will absolutely bring you that same level of fun and enjoyment that we've had in the Star Trek books over here on Literary Treks. Years ago, when I started listening to podcasts, I kept trying to find a podcast that was about the Star Trek books. And I could find a few things out there where somebody might talk about a book every once in a while or interview an author. But Literary Treks was really the first that I could find out there that was just focused on the books and the comics. And I love that. And there's been some others that have been out there, too, and they've come and gone. There really aren't any that have stuck around for a long period of time. And I think this is an advantage to the listeners of the show because you now will have more books and comics coverage than you've had before. Because this show, Literary Treks, will continue on. Mm -hmm. So you will have a double dose. Whatever is reviewed on Literary Treks, you can also go to Positively Trek and hear our reviews of books that are different or the same books or whatever it is. I mean, there may be book overlaps, I'm sure, especially with new books. This show will continue on and it will have these two hosts that you may be familiar with, and that is Chris Jones and Matt Rushing. Yes, the original hosts of Literary Treks are coming back. Now, I don't want you to perceive that as meaning, wait, the guys who started the show kicked you guys out so they could come back? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 that's not how it happened. We elected on our own to spread our wings and do something a little different and continue to do books and comics. And then they wanted to come back and continue t discussing books and comics. So you're getting the best of both worlds. <laughs> hey, I, I get that reference. Yeah, no, this is really exciting. And, you know, I have been a fan of literary treks since long before I was on it. I'm, I'm kind of less of a fan now that I have to listen to me when I listen to it. But uh, I'm actually really excited to hear Matt and Chris returning to this podcast and hear what they have to say about all the new books that are coming and whatever else whatever other books and comics they decide to cover as well and 
like Bruce says, we will continue to do the same over on Positively Trek. So, you know, you may notice I'm saying Positively Trek over and over and over again. I want to drill that into your head. Go search Positively Trek <laughs> wherever you get your podcasts. That's where you can find me and Bruce. Uh, I hope you guys have all li- loved listening to us. Uh, you know, I, I don't pretend that you know, we're the only reason you come to literary treks, but I hope we've provided you enough enjoyment that you will listen to the other stuff that we've got going on because, you know, I, I'm, I'm not one to usually toot my own horn. I don't like to do that, but I think Bruce and I have done something really fun with positively Trek and I see great things for it in the future. And we'd really appreciate it if you guys would come and listen to us over there as well as continuing to listen to literary treks. Yep. So you'll get a mix of things over there. It's still books and comics, but then there'll be some other things. And if you tune in now, you'll see that there have been episodes where we've had guests on. We've been interviewing people that are big into Star Trek fandom. And uh, just to say there is more to come. So uh, continue to listen to literary tracks and then also check out Positively Trek because the books and comics need lots of love. And the more love we show them, the more they will make. Okay. Here, here. <laughs> so. That being said, we don't really have any other news. That's our news item, by the way, for the day. And we don't have a comic to review for this episode, but we want to go into the listener feedback, the feedback that you gave us on our last episode, episode 305. And that episode was called The Nascene Scenes, where we were reviewing the last book in the String Theory series of Star Trek Voyager. And our first comment here is from Casey Pettit. And Casey says, while I'm a big fan of Chris and Matt, I started listening while they were still the host. You two have certainly made literary treks your own. I have very much enjoyed listening to your discussions and insights. Your interviews have been great as well. I'm sure I speak for all the listeners when I say that you'll be missed. Well, thank you, Casey. And just so everyone knows, if they're like, wait, how did Casey know about this if you guys just announced it? <laughs> so Chris Jones, the founder and editor here of the network, posted this change among some other changes at Trek FM. And uh, so Casey put his comment about us leaving into our show post. So uh, thank you so much, Casey. And you've been a supporter of the show. I hope you continue to be a supporter of the show. And um we really appreciate that. Yeah, thank you so much. Really appreciate those kind words. And uh yeah, it's it's uh, it's with mixed feelings I think that we're moving on. So, you know, we'll definitely miss literary treks, but we also are really excited for what the future's going to hold. So our other comments come from of course, Justin Ozer, the perennial commenter on our shows and we really appreciate his comments so justin first says loved year five number 11 gary seven has always been a fascinating character for me and i love the mystery of why he's doing what he's doing in this issue can't wait for the next one so yeah we reviewed star trek year five number 11 in the last uh, episode of literary treks and i absolutely agree with that comment Justin goes on to say, For the third string theory novel, my favorite part was the ancient Okampa scenes. Kess is a favorite character, and I've always wanted to know more about Okampa, so what we get here is great. I love Q, and the scenes in the Q continuum, or at least one of its suburbs, were really enjoyable. The lowercase Q annoyed me, though, because the author seemed determined to keep emphasizing her sexiness, and that overshadowed the other parts of her character, which were interesting and could have been developed more. 
Like you, the parts with Phoebe became tiresome after a while, and I just wanted that part to be done. I also could have done without the setup for season five that happens as that felt forced to me. Overall, there was a lot to enjoy, but there continued to be issues for me and and confusion on some points. I'd give this novel and the trilogy as a whole six out of ten scenes with Nacines that become Nacine scenes. Well, thank you for that comment, Justin. I agree with a lot of what you said there, and uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to comment about the show. Yeah, I felt this very much the same. So it's interesting how a lot of times the three of us think a lot alike about the novels. Not always, but uh, it seems like a lot of our listeners who read these books are pretty much on par. We're all pretty much the same on these things. So it's it's interesting. It's rare that we have somebody come in and say, oh, I love the book. And so I absolutely hated it. We don't really hear that very often. Yeah. I mean, we do hear people say, oh, I love Dan, but I hate Bruce. You know, I mean, that that's different because it's not a book. But <laughs> you've been seeing feedback that I haven't been seeing. So hmm, interesting. <laughs> anyway, I'm just joking. And I don't know. Maybe it is true. Anyway. Um, no, it's not. No. So that being said. You know what, Dan? We have a guest on today's show. We do indeed. And a, a guest who's very familiar with literary treks and may have been here from the beginning. Like from way, way far into the beginning. Yes, Dayton Ward is here. And you know why? Because he has a new book. So why waste time? Let's go ahead and dig in. So we have a TOS book called Agents of Influence by the wonderful great Dayton Ward. And, you know, the thing I like about his books is that we can have him on the show to talk about it because he's always passed out in the green room anyway. So we don't have to go far to find him. So, hey, Dayton, wake up. You want to talk about Agents of Influence? I suppose if we have to. (laughs) How are we doing, guys? Doing well. Oh, doing great. Glad to have you on the show again. How are you doing this whole COVID-19 thing? Uh, you know, uh, I was already working at home anyway, so that part didn't change. What did become the new norm was that summer break for my kids started back in March and has been going since then. Uh, they had, they had virtual learning for school, but that was only for a few hours a day. So it wasn't the same as them being, you know, gone to class all day. So, but they managed to muddle through and the teachers did a fantastic job. So that was the big, that was the big difference. Other than that, that, and, you know, not being able to find toilet paper for for a month <laughs> wandering the wastelands looking for toilet paper all walking dead search party style now you know that might inspire a future star trek novel for you i actually came up with a storyline that i was half joking about about a special ops group that is tasked with protecting the last pallet of toilet paper <laughs> and i never did get around to writing it but if we have a second wave where we're all locked at home again i might go ahead and write it we'll see <laughs> So let's talk about this book, Agents of Influence, TOS, takes place towards the end of the five-year mission. There's a lot of books that take place in that towards the end of the five-year mission, but yours is really getting towards the end here. So tell us a little bit about a quick summary of what the book is about. Uh, let's see. Well, like you said, it's just a five-year mission because that's where all the fun is at. And I kind of I play fast and loose with when exactly I set these kinds of stories. I mean... Uh, I, I long ago gave up the idea of trying to chronicle everything in a proper order. That way lies madness. I leave that to other more dedicated fans. Um, as far as the premise, the idea is that if you remember from the trouble with tribbles and 
Star Trek Discovery and even another set of novels called Errand of Vengeance, the Klingons have had undercover operatives in Federation space and within the ranks of Starfleet for years. Where, you know, they've been surgically altered to look human, and we assume that they are there collecting intelligence and reporting back to someone somehow and giving away some of our secrets, whatever it is they can find. So it stands to reason that Starfleet would do the same thing. So I posit the idea that Starfleet has recruited special operatives, surgically altered them to appear Klingon and inserted them behind, you know, enemy lines within the Klingon Empire. And they are on long term covert operations to collect intelligence and get it back to Starfleet so that we might monitor what the Empire is doing and perhaps plan for that. So my story is three agents who have been doing this for a while. Um, they are under threat of being discovered. So they they activate their emergency extraction protocol to be removed from undercover, basically getting pulled in from the cold. And their rendezvous with the another Federation starship goes bad, the starship Endeavor, a sister ship of the Enterprise. So Kirk and the Enterprise are tasked by Admiral Nagura to go find the Endeavor and find the agents and all of the information that they have collected. Before the Klingons do. And then I throw in some Orions too, because you know, why not? Of course, gotta throw <laughs> them in here. So the thing I was wondering, this is very early on in the book, so we're not into spoilers yet, but these, these agents, these Federation agents that are surgically altered look like Klingons. They are leaving Kronos, but at the same time, because not only do they have to get this information back, but because they also are being found out. How did They're being the Kling- found out. Yeah, how did the Klingons figure out that they were agents or possibly agents? They're basically their activities have begun to draw suspicion. Certain things that have they have found, or they've tripped. They've tripped. They've either tripped alert systems, or they've someone else has gotten suspicious, or someone's gone missing, or someone's just something's not adding up somewhere in an office somewhere. Um, so they've decided that the best course of action is to pull chocks and leave, uh, pop smoke, so to speak. And they have been collecting all this data. They haven't been able to transmit it because that would be a signal that, that they're there. So they've been collecting all this data. And when the time comes to leave, they have to basically compartmentalize it in these little storage data caches, which are like little crystal balls, I guess, for lack of a better term. And then we off we go. So that's, that's the idea is, is that they've been found out or they, or they think they're being found out and they leave. And then it becomes known that, you know, somebody within the council, within the high council was, was duped by one of these agents who was serving on his staff. So he's a weak link. And then they realize just how much information these people likely had, just how long they've been here and how much information that from various sources within different departments and different agencies that they have collected. So it's damaging. It's explosive. We're talking, you know, designs for future weapon systems and starships that they might add to their, their, their fleets, like the new, the new version of Klingon battle cruiser. So if, if Starfleet has that information that they can start designing weapons and defenses against the most modern ship that the Klingon empire can field. Um, they also might be able to find ways to destabilize the Klingon government. Remember it's still a cold war situation between the empire and the Federation at this point. So anything that you can do to upset your enemy without actually having to shoot rounds down range is a good thing. Uh, that's, that was part of it was fun was being able to evoke that old school cold war feel, you know, where both sides are kind of dancing across the line at each other without actually firing anybody, you know, firing any rounds at each other. So that was where I was going with that. It, uh, just, just an old school cold war thriller type vibe. That's one of the things I enjoy most about this novel is that feel of that cold war state between the two 
governments here. Uh, I also like that the Klingons don't like they suspect these people of having done a bunch of stuff, but they don't even realize that they're surgically altered humans for quite a while. They think these might be three Klingons who have uh, defected yep. or become traitors to the government or something. I thought that was interesting how they find that out kind of piece by piece throughout. Yeah, the I'd like, I like that way because it gets them thinking in one direction. And then when they realize just how far down the hole this has gone and just how badly they've been duped, um, that just motivates them even more to to get them before the you know Starfleet can rescue them. I really like the timing of this book of when it came out because after watching in Discovery season one with Ash Tyler going from Klingon to being the human, and of course, like you said, we've seen this before, like Arn Darvin and the Trouble with Tribbles, but you know it, it's really fascinating to see it the other way around. We really haven't seen that in Star Trek before, have we? Not to my knowledge, no. And it's not like they're part of Section 31, which I thank you for that, because sometimes I feel like we get a little too much of that. Yeah, I mean, at this point, see, I'm 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 old school in the fact that I don't think Section 31 is a known entity, at least not by and large. I mean, sure, it's it's a it's a thing. And uh, I think Discovery kind of I don't know if they came right out and said it, but the, the way they try to explain it was it seems like everybody knows about it. But if you really look hard, the only people who know about Section 31 are on the Section 31 ship or they're on Discovery. It's not it's not um, mm-hmm. broad public information. So I, I think they did OK by that. And of course, if you've seen Discovery season two, you know how they tied off that knot. So um, mm-hmm. not to spoil anything, but I go with the old school idea that by the time. Kirk and the Enterprise are in action. Section 31 is, if you know about it, it's it's mostly hearsay. There may be people at the, there are people at the upper echelons of, of Starfleet Command who know about it, but I don't think that it's common knowledge or if they do know anything about it, they think it's gone the way of the dodo, which is what you would want if you're a covert organization. You're quite happy to let everybody think you died away, died off and faded away. You know, that's how it should be. You don't, I don't know of any covert organizations who walk around with their insignia on t-shirts or whatever, letting you know that they're there. But. I, I do have to say also just as, you know, a fan of a longtime fan of the books, I loved that you referenced uh, Errand of Vengeance and the undercover Klingons in that novel. Cause I, my mind was kind of going there as, as I was reading this. And then I forget exactly where in the novel, but there is a definite, like absolute reference to uh, one of the officers that was, found out to be a Klingon agent. I just love that. There's a, I mean, we, 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 and it also carries over from, um, I think we make a reference to that in Vanguard. Um, those, the, I, tr- I, tr- I know I, there was a point in the Vanguard books when I was trying to make sure that we were consistent with, uh, the Aaron trilogies, particularly when we got to the attack on Starbase 42 and the, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, I just wanted to make sure that we, and Nagura was during all of that. So it's an easy, fit for some of the novels, particularly the older stuff. But if I can find a way to link it in and not really upset the canon, the canon keepers too much, then I will do that. Yeah. That guy. I've heard of that guy. Those canon keepers are real bastards. So (laughs) particularly that one guy, what's his name? So, um, (laughs) okay. So then when I got this book, let's move on to this next part. I want to talk about the USS Endeavor. So it plays a big role in this. As as you mentioned before, they kind of rescue these undercover agents and they have them on the ship, but then they're attacked by a Klingon cruiser, which is affected by this disruptive effect in the asteroid field. Now, 
this Endeavor crew we've seen before. They're in the Vanguard books. They have a role in that. And then also in the Seeker novels, which, by the way, when I opened this book and I saw the historian's note saying Seekers 4, I was like, oh, that just reminded me. I've read Seekers 1, 2, and 3, but I haven't read 4 yet. So I plowed through (laughs) 4, Seekers 4, and went right into this, which I love because I was really Which you didn't really have to do. No, you didn't. Not at all. No one has to do that because there really wasn't any tie in there. If anything, it was just I was more familiar with this crew going in. But there's no story tie in there. So I was just wondering why you decided to use the Endeavor in this book. I thought it'd be fun. I mean, that and I don't think we're going to see any more Seekers novels. Uh, I, I I don't I think that was an experiment that was noble, but ultimately didn't light the world on fire like we thought it would. And, you know, now that we have Star Trek in active production again, uh, the tie ins are obligated to support those productions, you know, as well, as much as they can. So there's a balance there between what's in production and current and what works the best among the older series and you know original series and next generation uh, are by far the 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 best selling of the stuff that pocket or i'm sorry simon and schuster i'm gonna say pocket books till the day i die i I mean i said it for 20 years i still haven't figured out gallery books is the imprint now that does star trek novels um so you know those are the ones that sell so that's not saying we're not going to see anything from other series necessarily i i there's always a chance you're going to see something from one of the other shows, but by and large next gen and original series are, are the top sellers. And so experiments like seekers and some of the spinoff stuff that we've been, that we enjoyed doing years ago, there's just no room for it anymore. And, you know, the financial justification isn't necessarily there for some of these folks. So I saw a clear field to use the endeavor because it was, I hate, I needed a ship and a crew to be the victims, you know, to set up the enterprise. And it might, I figured, well, it might as well be a ship and a crew I've written before. That way I don't have to figure out, all the sh- I don't have to figure out all the roles and character names and all that stuff. I can just use these guys. So mm-hmm. it was part that and just part, it'd be fun to kind of loop in the seekers aspects of our storyline. So, uh, that's, I mean, cause even if we're not going to see another seekers book, I still love those books and I still love those characters. So this is a chance for me to revisit them. Well, just speaking as, you know, a fan who reads the novels, it's it's great to see that crew again. And I, you know, I had missed them. I loved Vanguard and their role in Seekers was great, too. So, you know, it's kind of sad to see some of the stuff that happens to the Endeavor in this book. Yeah, though. but I mean, but, it was uh, it's funny. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll admit this because uh, the book is out now. But when I wrote it, the first my first draft of the book um I had the endeavor being scuttled at the end. Um, And then Scott Pearson, bless him, our copy editor for the Star Trek novels, he reminded me that in Star Trek six, there's a schematic that Colonel West shows the president and the, and the CNC, you know, about the operation retrieve and the endeavor is listed on the map with its, with its proper uh, registry number, one, eight, nine, five, not one, eight, nine, five, a, and not something else. It's, Damn it! I got to go back and get the ship. So uh, I ended up rewriting that last chapter uh, to to remove the part where they scuttle the saucer section. Uh, we're in spoiler territory now. Um, so um, yeah, so the idea is that they retrieve. You know, the idea will I would assume is that they will retrieve the saucer section, and and I assume that this will just accelerate its schedule for being refit. You know, for the Constitution class refits that are coming. You know, I mean the Enterprise is a year away at most from starting its refit, you know, based on when my book is set. So 
that's how I look at it is the Endeavor saucer will be recovered and it'll be fitted and it'll be refitted and attached to a new secondary section and off it will go as a refit Consti, Con, Connie. So that sounds familiar. Awesome. I think you mentioned that in the book, right? I remember What's something about the, about the new refit and maybe using that. Or- I think I made a passing reference to the constitution refits that are, that are being planned. I don't yeah. remember offhand, but I, I want to say mm-hmm. I made an offhand reference about it, but, um, or I've done it in a book somewhere that's set similar time frame, but I know I I know I've had a throwaway reference to the refits that are coming, and Scotty being all excited about the new technology and all of that. But uh, yeah, all of that was fun because Scott was like, "Hey, you know, from Star Trek Six." I'm like, "No, I forgot." So let me rewrite that. <laughs> Gosh, there's so much out there. How could you forget? You know, <laughs> it's easy. It's easy to slip up. I know it's crazy. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the crew of the Endeavor for those who don't know. Well, I mean, they started off as a second, as, as a as a group of secondary characters in the Vanguard novels. They were one of the ships. The Endeavor was one of three ships assigned to Starbase Forty Seven in the Vanguard novels, and it was originally commanded by uh, Captain Zhao Sheng. If I said his name right, I probably didn't. And we killed that bastard dead in our first Vanguard novel, uh, Summon the Thunder, which was actually the second in the series, but it was the first one that Kevin and I wrote. So we we killed him dead and elevated his first officer, Atish Kintami, to the captaincy of that ship. And so that's the crew configuration that has more or less been on that ship since the Vanguard novels. And then when when Vanguard ended... A couple years later, Dave Mack and Kevin and I figured out that we could maybe sell Simon and Schuster and CBS on a spinoff series where the crew of the Endeavor and the crew of the Sagittarius can headline their own novel and we would alternate, you know, books. Dave would write the Sagittarius crew and Kevin and I would write the Endeavor crew and we would alternate under one umbrella title called Star Trek Seekers. So they became stars of their own spinoff, just just like Norman Lear would do back in the 70s with every sitcom on TV. And so we got four books out of the Seeker series before that kind of fell by the wayside. So here's this perfectly cool crew of capable officers that I haven't had a chance to play with in a few years. And I needed a new crew anyway, so why not? And of course, you know, there are a few surprises built into that because there's expectations that all these are good guys. And of course, I, I, I may not be the case depending on how you do it. My favorite character, I think, from the, from the, from the Endeavor crew is the Doctor. Anthony Leone. Mm-hmm. He yeah. is like Dr. McCoy who has never had a good day ever. <laughs> his sardonic wit, his, his sardonic nature and his sarcasm and his cynicism make McCoy like a happy go lucky guy. <laughs> That's he's never. And of course, if you, if you look, if I don't know if we've if it's ever been talked about, but in the writer's guide that we created that, that Dave created first for Vanguard and then we, we updated it for seekers. We each we we gave we we uh, have an actor that we imagined playing the role, and for Anthony Leone, we pictured Steve Buscemi. Uh, so he's our guy, that, yeah. and so that's how I wrote him. I wrote him as Steve Buscemi. Well, he's my favorite character because he's 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 always got a smart aleck comment on the ready. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what you do, doesn't matter how many stripes you have, he doesn't care. Does not care. McCoy at least can exercise <laughs> a little express a little you know a little professional discretion, but Leone doesn't have that filter. <laughs> so so he's based on david mack basically kind of sort of yeah maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well uh, as you kind of uh, mentioned i think we're definitely firmly into spoiler territory here so 
uh, yeah, going forward, we're going to be spoiling the heck out of the story because one of the crew members that I want to talk about is, uh, the Liren chief engineer, uh, and and the Lyran, I, I I love their species. I I think are they originally from the early voyages comics? They are. Was that the Nano? They are. That was the first one. Eh? Yeah. He was the first one. Yeah. They were that was created for the early voyages comic, and then somewhere along the line, we thought that would be a cool character to incorporate into the uh, the Seekers books because remember, a lot of the Endeavor crew was injured or killed in the final battle in Vanguard. So a lot of these folks are crew replacements that that started with the ship in Seekers. Um, and Yataro was one of them. So, yeah, it was just something fun. We were looking for a way to kind of diversify the crew uh, and not lean on the usual aliens that you see in TOS level. I mean, TOS doesn't have a lot to work with in terms of established races that we know are serving on ships. So we kind of have to bend the rules a little bit. So, but we, you know, we've seen Vulcans and we've seen Tellarites and we've even seen the odd Andorian, but um, this was a cool species and a cool character from the original, the, the character himself is not from the comics, but the species is. So we, mm-hmm. we decided to lean into that a little bit. It's a fun way to, to rope in another part from the expanded universe and, 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 and give a nod of respect to the comics. Yeah. I got to say uh heartbreaking like that, that scene, he dies in this novel. I got <laughs> to say, and, uh, <laughs> Oh man, that killed me because, uh, I, I don't know why I just always really liked him. I liked his way of interacting with people, kind of that frank nature of his. And, uh, yeah, that was, that was a shocker. That one really, I liked him. I liked him right up into the moment where I killed him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think I was shocked by that too. I was like, Whoa, that was the idea. You were supposed to be shocked by that. Yeah. I like to see that coming. And even like the end of the chapter, I think, I think it goes like, and all of a sudden it exploded in a flash of white blue light or something. And I was like, maybe he's not dead. <laughs> that's like that's his perspective. Yeah. And then next chapter right away. Nope. Okay. Yeah. No, he gone. <laughs> POV switch. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> I was the same way. I was like, wait, does that mean he's really dead? Maybe something else happened. Uh, I don't know. No, too bad. I want to talk more about all that, uh, the mystery person in this. But before we get to that, Dayton, you had mentioned the Orions, because why not? Why not throw the Orions in here? You know, I don't know why the Orions and the Klingons can trust each other, but then again, I don't think they do. So tell us about that situation. There's just, you know, the Klingons find the Orions useful. Um, so they pay them some money to do what Orions do well, which is skulk around and avoid scrutiny and pretend to be neutral and all that other stuff. And they're useful. That way the Klingons can hide behind the shield of, you know, we're not doing anything. We're just scientists developing this, you know, we're just working. We're not, we're not actually doing anything in Federation space that we're not supposed to be doing. That's why that works. Yeah. You know, they're, they're just basically subcontractors for this, for the purposes of this, uh, this effort that the Klingons are doing on the asteroid field. And it's fun. Orions are always fun. And that's probably a carryover from Vanguard too. Um, you know, Orions, you can do some things, you can do things with the Orions that you can't do with the Klingons or the Romulans. So, because they have a particular prescribed code of conduct that we kind of have to stick to. And even within that, I mean, I try to flesh out the Klingons a little bit. Not every Klingon's a warrior. Not every Klingon is in the military. You try to, you try to diversify that a little bit. Uh, which is why we have the Klingon scientist who's, you know, she eschewed family tradition and did not join the military, but she's still serving the empire. She's just doing it differently. So. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, not everybody's a soldier, and you can't. I mean, it, just, it never made any sense that everybody in the Empire is a soldier. Somebody has to build things. Somebody has to fix things. Somebody has to fuel things. Somebody has to cook things. You know, it's just uh, it's just the way the, even a modern military doesn't work that way. So, uh, the uh, the Orions in this novel, I got to say, speaking of the Klingons and Orions not really trusting each other, that scene where the uh, Orion is communicating with the Klingons and obviously being held at phaser point <laughs> off screen, that betrayal of the Orions by the Klingons and you see his um, his whole affect change and then you're, it's revealed that he's being held and they're kind of like, eh, sorry they betrayed you, buddy. Yeah. Sorry about your luck, <laughs> I man. I love that. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the other thing too is the Klingons will use you and then they'll just totally toss you over their shoulder when they're done with you. That They don't care. They don't care. You serve mm-hmm. a purpose until you don't, and then just move on. Um, so speaking of Klingons and and various species kind of not being this monolithic thing, uh, it kind of struck me while reading this novel that the assumptions we have about Klingons sometimes seem to get in the way of understanding them. So you mentioned Lital, the uh, scientist, the head scientist behind this technology. She's very reasonable and very pragmatic. I love that, you know, when it's clear that the enterprise has the upper hand. She's not going to fight to the last warrior. She's going to evacuate the base because she's, you know, going to save her people kind of thing. Um, but then we go to Nagura and, and I, I just love this because it just kind of shows things from the other side. Um, she says to him, I appreciate you showing me the, mer- the mercy you have. And, uh, Nagura basically says, you know, after she's closed the communication, I doubt that Klingons don't tend to look kindly upon those who surrender or otherwise capitulate to an enemy. And so the assumption that the Klingons are going to react one way, but then even later on, her colleague is saying like, no, you'll be fine. Like we value brains and that kind of thing. I love that there's kind of a more nuanced look at the Klingons here and even the Federation has kind of preconceptions that I think need to be challenged here. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it goes back to what I was saying, you know, the, the, the Klingons may not like scientists. They may not respect them. They don't have the warrior ethos or whatever, whatever it is that drives, you know, the Klingon military machine, but somebody's got to build their ships and somebody's got to design their weapons. And if you kill them all off because they piss you off, then what are you going to do? So there's a there's a line there. I, I I guess there has to be some sort of line of tolerance that you would have to cross before you invoke that kind of wrath. But uh, th- it was a project that wasn't even sanctioned by the council or wasn't sanctioned by the by the chancellor. So cut your losses and put them to work doing something else. You know that kind of thing. I mean, now that's not to say they won't make her life difficult or rough. They might send her to Ruapente or something. She can, you can, you can have a lab anywhere. So you might as well have it in some crap hole <laughs> asteroid prison planet, but I don't know. That's, that's for the, you know, that's for speculation for another book or something, or let the reader figure it out. Let the reader have fun with it. I, I would actually, I would love to see this character again. Cause I think she brought a really interesting perspective for sure. It was fun. It was, like I said, I, you can't, you can't, Star Trek falls into this trap a lot where alien species all sort of walk in step and they all do the same thing and they think the same thing and they believe the same things. And for TV, that's kind of a necessity. You don't really have the time to dig into a culture every week, you know, especially back there in the one, you know, the one episode planet of the week type storylines. You didn't, you just didn't have that kind of time to world build. Uh, But I don't have that kind of, I don't have that excuse in a book, I, I I need to 
build out a civilization. But and, but when we're dealing with one that's familiar, you want to bring something different to the table. Uh, you know, obviously we know what's going to happen as far as Kirk, Spock, and the gang by the end of the book. There are certain things I can't change. So I have to make the journey worthwhile for the reader because they already know certain, they already, you know, there's already certain built in assumptions about a, a Star Trek novel, particularly one that's set earlier in the timeline. I can't, you know, it doesn't matter how much danger I put Kirk in, you know, he's going to make it. It's just how entertaining can I make it? Uh, how entertaining can I make that sequence of events for you? Um, so the idea is to try to bring something different, something you didn't know about the character, something you didn't know about the, the alien, something you didn't know about the enemy, you know, when you started. It's a difficult balancing act when you're writing a tie-in book like this. Absolutely, yeah. And even I'm, I'm even thinking back to the beginning of the novel, too, where we see the three Klingons, or the three Federation agents disguised as Klingons, kind of interacting with the general public on Kronos. I thought that was a really interesting scene, and especially using the, the nature of Klingons and, and how they view honor and stuff against them to kind of get out of that situation in the bar. It's just a neat little bit of world building that we, we don't tend to see on the shows or films. And that's, you know, again, that's the, that's the, the requirement of the format. You know, the, the, the shows don't really have that kind of time or that luxury. They, they, they have a story to tell and get in and get out in 40 odd minutes. So, uh, or within, within the structure of a season. So, Certain things like that have to take a back seat to the overall plot line. But again, I can't hide behind that in a hundred thousand word novel. I have to give you a little bit more than, than that. So, uh, that's where that starts. I had fun with it. It was, it was fun to try to picture it. I mean, I've set, I've set scenes on Kronos before and I've set scenes on Klingon ships before. Um, so it's a matter of what can I do differently? What is it that I didn't do in all those other, those other attempts to write about Klingons? So. Again, it's all about making the journey worthwhile since you know parts of how it's going to end. Yeah, I really do love that idea of seeing Klingons not in the same light all the time and, and any species like that because mm-hmm. there is going to be diversity. There's people with different jobs and different things. So I really right. appreciate that about this book. And even though the Empire is driven by its military, I mean, it's definitely geared toward its its ability to wage war. You You have to allow for these other types of Klingons, these other, these other, these people who are driven by other motivations. So for scientists, you know, they have a, they have an ethos that they follow and a moral code that they follow. And sometimes it'll line up with the Klingons overall feelings about honor, but sometimes it'll run counter to it Mm -hmm. and not necessarily in a bad way. It's just, they don't necessarily buy into all the hype, so to speak, sort of like a situational thing. Uh, that's how I look at it. I mean, why aren't, why wouldn't they be just as nuanced and across the board, in how they think and believe and in, in, in what ideology they follow as we are. Yeah. Cause if you were going to write a war novel and it's the perspective of the army, the military that, mm-hmm. you know, there's different stories and perspectives back home. And there's different, there's different, there's different thinking and beliefs and ideologies within the ranks too. I mean, not every soldier thinks the same thing. Not every soldier believes the same thing. Some people believe in the cause and other people are there because they're on the college program or, they got drafted. It was there. It was, it was, or they're there because the judge said you can either go to war or you can go to jail, you know, whatever. So it just doesn't, you know, depending on when you set your story, of course, that's not a thing today, or maybe it is, I don't know. Uh, so yes, no, that's the idea is that there has to be that diversity of, of, of personality types. Otherwise it's just, they're boring. I mean, not every Klingon is even the Klingons who espouse honor the most, you know, some of those, some of those guys are shifty bastards. They don't really believe it. 
they believe it enough to get by or that presents a good public face or it helps them juice up their supporters. But then there, then there are the hardcore believers. So that, that all sounds very familiar. Yeah, I can't imagine hmm. where that might be a topic of relevance. Hmm. <laughs> well, and then, of course, with war and battle, we actually have something like that in here. We have, there's a ground assault on the Endeavor saucer section in here. So what was the inspiration with the Orions attacking this craft? What was that in that part of the novel? What was the inspiration on that? Well, the idea is that they think they have to get at the agents and whatever it is that they've harbored, you know, whatever they're harboring, whatever information they've got aboard that ship. And if they can get it, then the Klingons, you know, won't necessarily cut them loose or whatever. They're, they're still on point. They're still on mission. They've, they've got a job to do. Um, as far as the, why the, why I had the battle in there, I, I didn't, with, with the saucer being grounded, your options are kind of limited. And I thought, well, an, a bombardment is kind of boring. We've seen that before. Um, but you don't really get to see ground combat in a Star Trek novel or a Star Trek story very often. Um, so, uh, I just thought it would be a visually, you know, or not visually, but I, I just thought it would be story-wise. It would be an exciting set piece for that point in the novel. Uh, I, I already had starship combat going on either earlier in the book or it was coming later in the book. So another space battle, I didn't want to do another space battle. I don't really like writing space battles to begin with. I don't, I think they're kind of, they're kind of boring after a while. There's only so much you can do. You know, how many times do we need to hear that the shields are down to 70% and the starboard power coupling is going out and blah, blah, blah. You know, I, you know, I, there's only so much of that you can handle before it becomes repetitive. So uh, I, I try to limit those as much as I can. And so, but with the, with the idea of the ship being grounded and having, and having the crew forced to defend it like a stationary, like a, you know, a fixed position against an aggressor force, that's not something you see very often or very often at all in a Star Trek story. So uh, I just decided to have a little fun with that. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool seeing that in a Star Trek setting, like the almost a siege against a fortified target right. with even like cannon emplacements and stuff. It was, it was kind of a it neat got idea. me a chance to pull the big cage era laser cannons out of storage. You know, the big the big ones like they used to, to shoot the mountain in the cage. Um, I had those. And then, of course, they're all environmental suits, which adds a factor of complexity to the proceedings. You know, they're on this, they're on this asteroid all out there in EV suits. And I actually had to draw out the area on a, on a piece of grid paper so that I could keep track of where everything was. Like I drew the saucer and I drew where the, the phaser emplacements were and I drew where the people were. And I basically laid it out what, like I would a tactical map to figure out where everybody would attack from. And of course, I set it up by having the by having the saucer touch down in an area of this canyon where it was defended on a couple of sides by the rock walls of the canyon. So there was really only one or two directions that the Orions could advance. So, uh, yeah, it was fun. It was fun setting it up. It was like trying to write a like a little military, just a little military battle, but in space with Star Trek. So. Yeah, definitely. Definitely a nice change of pace from space battles where everybody's just their chairs are rocking. They get knocked to the deck. Red alert. Shields are down. You know, that kind of thing. I get bored of that really easily. Can you tell? (laughs) It's like Star Trek politics. I can't stand writing Star Trek politics. Well, speaking of kind of bringing new and different things onto the battlefield of, of Star Trek and changing things up a bit. I really like your inclusion of this weapon that the Klingons are developing. And we, we talked a little bit about it, but uh, this kind of um, dampening field that disrupts starship technologies. And 
our listeners can't see this, but we're talking to you over Zoom and you've got kind of an animated series background. I'm assuming this is extrapolated from the uh, projected stasis field from, I think it was more Tribbles, more Troubles in the animated series. Is that right? Because I, I think there's a couple of uh, references. There are some off references to that technology, that that was, that was a limited application of this technology, this version, this is sort of like the next generation, no pun intended, of that technology. More energy efficient, not doesn't, you know, doesn't require the power output that it did of the Klingon ships when they did that. You remember there was a power requirement or there was a power limitation that Kirk was able mm-hmm. to take, Kirk was able to defeat because he figured out, you know, that they were kind of hamstrung when they were employing this weapon. So you could almost say that the second generation of this weapon is being modeled after the what they learned at that during that encounter. So thanks James for helping us out with our tech. <laughs> you know, one thing I didn't think about until now we haven't touched on is that other ship that Kirk was on that shuttle or weird looking thing. Tell us about that. Uh, the idea was that we had to go looking for the endeavor because, you know, we, we pot, the idea was that the endeavor made it look like they self-destructed and, um, so, so far as anybody else was concerned, the Enterprise was on a recovery mission. Um, and then at the same time, all that's going on, Kirk and Sulu and Uhura are in this other shuttle, this other small personnel transport posing as civilians, basically just making their way through the region, you know, from a planet that's not aligned, it's not in Federation space. And the, and, and, and the route through the asteroid field is known to people who like to avoid Federation security patrols or Imperial security patrols. They know that this is an area of space that they're not typically going to monitor because it's hazardous. So your, your hotshot pilots will use that to avoid attracting attention. So, but what they're doing is conducting the search because they know the endeavor survived. They're just trying to find it. And they figure if there's two ships mm-hmm. looking and they can get an idea on where the ship was last seen or, or, or some sort of indication on where it may have entered the field and they can triangulate on that position and and beat anybody else to them so then of course the story lays out that they did in fact leave a clue for the enterprise to find that they could then use to dial in on their position more or less not 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 right to knock on the door but at least narrow down the search within the asteroid field yeah you know one thing about that you mentioned about them wearing civilian clothing uh when they're on that ship and you said sulu had a light blue shirt i thought is he wearing the same shirt he did in the voyage home i think he only has one shirt (laughs) <laughs> no i don't know i don't remember <laughs> yeah i just thought he had the same wardrobe you know he was just wearing the same shirt it's like you know they wear the same the same shirt for 20 years they don't they don't have any i mean they don't wear civilian clothes they wear uniforms so it's very possible he could have bought mm-hmm. that shirt at some store on a base you know 20 years earlier and like most military guys he'll wear it till it till it falls apart because when else will he wear it except when he's <laughs> off duty right so right <laughs> Well, we we mentioned this a little earlier, but we've got uh, a Klingon spy in the ranks of the Endeavor crew. Uh, And the identity of this spy is kind of covered up for quite a while. And I got to say, I'm I'm really frustrated with myself reading this book because at the start of the book, you say there are Klingon spies (laughs) all throughout the Federation and I'm reading this book and like, who could, who on the Endeavor crew could possibly be a turncoat? I can't believe that. 
of course it's a Klingon spy and I'm kicking myself. I don't know why I didn't think of that. I feel like a complete idiot <laughs> reading this, but yeah, of course it's a, it's an altered Klingon spy, as you've said from chapter one. And, uh, so that was, that was really interesting. I, I think we should definitely talk a little bit about this Ivan Tompkins in quotation marks. Well, he's a, he's a member of the crew dating back to seekers. He was one of the replacement crew members that came on board after the events of Vanguard, but before the first Seekers book. So, so he uh, was he was in the Seekers novels, like as a regular. I'm, I'm in not the Seekers novels, that. That's yeah. awesome. He, he, but I mean, I don't oh, know that he was ever a point amazing. of view character. I don't. He was never a point of view character. He was just like a member of the engineering team. But he was there. In fact, I went back mm. in and, and and looked at one of the Seekers books, looking for a character that I could do this to. And I'm like, yes, I've got him. And he's and he was he was somebody who was posted to the ship as a replacement member after they lost so many people in the battle at Vanguard. So it's perfect. Uh, oh, that's great. So he's been there all <laughs> along, just under your nose. That was the idea. Man, yeah, uh, I was yeah, kicking I was, myself because it's. I when I wrote the outline, I knew it was going to be somebody. I just didn't know who. Um, I think I, I even said I may have written his name in the outline. I have to go back and look, but it was supposed the idea was that it was somebody who was placed into the crew after the events of Vanguard. And I, and I like that you, you make it very clear as well that he was never like replacing an existing person. He was a completely fabricated, uh, identity from the ground up because of, you know, the lessons they'd learned, uh, from previous missions where that didn't work, which I'm assuming, of course, you're referring to Ash Tyler pretty directly there. Maybe. Or the guys from the Aaron Vengeance <laughs> books, you know, uh, right. was, so yeah. I, I didn't come out and say who I left it to the reader. I left enough breadcrumbs where you could draw either conclusion or both conclusions. But yeah, the idea was that they, they learned replacing somebody carried an element of risk. Um, so I thought the idea that they had crafted this person from the ground up and they were just waiting for an opportunity to insert him uh, was more interesting. Cause you mm-hmm. figure by this point we're 10, we're, 10 or 11 years after the events of discovery. Um, so they've gotten pretty good at this by now. Yeah. As, as I was reading this, I kept thinking, yeah, we've had discovery now. Now we're getting TOS novels. Are we going to see elements of discovery in this? And didn't really see that, but like you said, there's little seeds that may lead to that, but yeah, uh, I didn't, I'm not yeah. looking to draw an overt line to right. it, but it's, it's there. It's part of the lore now. And so, if I can find a way to do it without being obvious about it or ostentatious about it or in your face about it, I will. I mean, I know there are people out there that will yell at me because I'm going against purist Star Trek or whatever, but I don't care. Um, they can write their own book. <laughs> they can, they can make the rules when they write their own book. Uh, yeah. I like the idea if of anything it. that would make me go right in their face with it. I, I just, just it's me. there. I don't, I, you know, it's there to draw on. That's the whole point of having this vast tapestry is that it's there. I mean, I draw where, wherever I can find something interesting like that to bone up my story, whether it's another show or a comic or another novel or a novel that's been rendered incompatible with the existing Canon uh, or the, or the Canon as it is now, I'm going to, I'm going to find a way to weave it in. That's just the way I go. Cause I love all of it. So do we thank you Absolutely. so much. <laughs> I'm sure I haven't earned it. I'm sure there's somebody out there seizing at the idea that there's a discovery a reference, even an oblique one in an original series novel. That's just the way it goes. Well, that's the thing. If you've never watched Discovery and you read this novel, you wouldn't you wouldn't even pick up that there's any reference to Discovery. Like you said, it's so small that it's not really even a reference. But you know there's somebody out there and they're listening to this right now and they're seething. They're seething. <laughs> and I love that. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I don't. Agreed. <laughs> I mean, don't read drastic measures if you don't like Discovery and TOS bumping up against each other. So, Absolutely. All right. Well, I really loved this book. I really did enjoy it. Yeah, it's like classic TOS. But is there anything else you want to add? I just, I, I had a lot of fun with it. Uh, I wanted to do an old school Cold War thriller. Uh, I wanted to do an old school five-year mission era of the original series is my favorite as a fan. So anytime I'm asked mm-hmm. to do that, I get excited because that's just, that's just my little part of the sandbox that I thoroughly enjoy. I will never tire of reading a five-year mission story and I will never, I will never turn down the opportunity to write another one. So I know there are people out there saying we've got way too many of them and the play, you know, the field is overmined and how can you possibly fit another story in there? And, you know, I just remind people it's not real. <laughs> it's, I use the five-year mission era. Those, those, that period of time is a point of departure. It's like, you know, like writing a Batman story or a James Bond story, or, you know, there's always something new to be done with those characters. Um, and they're my favorites. So as long as they'll let me, I'll keep writing them. Well, and there's, there's yeah. so many strong characters and situations in this book. I just realized we really didn't talk much about the original series crew because there's so much strong characters with the Endeavor and the Orions and the Klingons. And I had fun with that too, because I got, I broke them up. So, you know, I, I put, Kirk, Sulu, and Nahura together, and I kept Spock and McCoy on the Enterprise, uh, and Scotty on the Enterprise, and then um, I tried to give everybody a little something to do, uh, you know, to contribute to the, to fixing the problem. Like, and I don't, I think it's, I think it's probably a, a, a side effect of the the newer Star Trek movies where they've sort of redefined a little bit about what exactly Uhura does on the ship. Like, you know, in the original series, she basically answered the phones. And maybe every once in a while she stepped out of that and did something else more related to her field. But I think with the advent of the newer movies, you saw that she's very, and not to say that Michelle Nichols was not, but I think the way the characters are portrayed more in the more modern version is, you know, she, she definitely has a very broad, that character has a very broad skill set, And the original series just never really had a chance to tap into that, but there's no reason we can't in the novels. So to show her that she's very highly skilled, she's very technically capable and she's capable of being given a task and carrying it out, you know, within that area of expertise. I think we sort of have a responsibility to show that rather than just her sitting at her console and answering the phone. So I, the same reason with Chekhov and and Sulu, they, they, these, these are all highly technically capable people, but you don't necessarily get to see that in the episodes of the original show, because that's just not how the show was written. But we don't have that, you know, like I said before, I don't have the luxury of hiding behind that curtain. We have to tell stories for the, you know, for a modern reading readership. So, so I kind of walk a line between honoring what has come before, but yet putting a little bit of a modern twist on it while still remaining, hopefully remaining faithful, you know, to the original show. Yeah. It felt to me, their Definitely. interaction felt like the movies a little more like that. A little bit. I mean, I don't, I'm not looking to make, I mean, I've never written a Kelvin Star Trek book and I don't know that I ever will, but, and I don't, I don't, I'm not necessarily trying to redefine Uhura's character to be that version. I'm just saying that the movie showed a side of her character and her technical expertise that the show never did. But I believe that Uhura, the character in the original show had those capabilities. She just never got a chance to showcase them. So it was Mm -hmm. sort of a, if, if anything, it was a throwback more to the novels written in the eighties 
you, you know, that uh, like Ahura song and Tears of the Singers where Ahura was more front and center. And she was the one who got, she was the one who drove the plot. She was the one who solved the mystery. She was the one who made the first contact and, 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 and you know, and fixed things. So if anything, it's, it's kind of a combination between that and taking advantage of what we now perceive as what Ahura can do. So, and it's, mm-hmm. it's not meant as a slight against the original version of the character. I just think she always had those skill sets. We just never got a chance to see it. So, and there are, there's hints at it. I mean, there's a couple of episodes where she's doing something and Spock praises her, her technical acumen, you know? And so I'm like, okay, let's just draw on that. So I definitely appreciate how you walk that line and, and portray these characters with kind of, like you say, a modern sensibility, but still keep it kind of grounded in that TOS five-year mission aesthetic. I have to say, I loved this novel as well. I had a great time reading it. And I think for me, one of the things that sticks out in my mind was picturing the sixties over the top decor of the civilian ship that they were (laughs) flying. Like, it just felt like, oh, there's shag carpet yes. on this ship somewhere. Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, 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 when I write these books, I still think of the bridge as the bridge on the original the original show. I still look at the characters and the uniforms mm-hmm. and the props as what they appeared on the original show. Other people have started telling me that, you know, when they, when they see the Enterprise, now they picture it the way it was shown in Discovery. Or they see the, the phasers and the, and the uniforms and they, and they think... Uh, you know, it, it looks like that now. And I'm like, not in my head. In my head, it's still the 60s show. You know, it's not the JJ flicks. It's not Discovery. Yeah. It's still, it's still the original aesthetic. Um, that being said, you know, the, um, the characterizations are, and I, 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 like I said, I try to keep the characterizations based on what we know. I still picture the original actors, but you can't deny that uh, if, if, the, if the JJ movies did anything, it was expand on what those supporting characters were capable of doing had they been given an opportunity to shine like that in the original show. So I choose to take that and apply it to the, to the original folks. I don't think I'm doing them a disservice If anything. I'm helping them be more relevant to the stories. For sure. Yeah. I agree completely. Yeah. I really enjoyed that. And I honestly, and I did this on purpose. I did picture the bridge from the discovery series because I wanted to see how it would feel. I forgive you. <laughs> I Gorn tried. I couldn't do it for more than a second. Gorn season. forgives you. <laughs> oh, Gorn, thank you. Okay, Dayton, so what else do you have for us coming uh, now that this book is out? I'm hoping there's more from you. <laughs> uh, I'm working on a couple of things right now that have not been announced. Um, one is uh, I'm working on a book for another publisher that's not Star Trek, uh, and it's not a novel. Uh, it, but it does tie into a very popular property uh, that has a new movie coming out in the next year or so. And so <clears throat> I don't, I don't like, I think that leaves me with enough possibilities that you won't guess it right away, but uh, they haven't announced it yet. So I'm actually collaborating with someone and I'm not, it's not Kevin uh, and it's not actually, it was sort of a marriage. My editor partnered me with this person who's going to be writing in certain aspects of the book. And I'm writing basically other background material and flavor text as they call it. So um, yeah, hopefully I'll be able to announce that in a couple of months. And then um, I do have another Star Trek novel that has not been announced that I will start working on later this summer. That'll be out. I think it's scheduled for later next year. So I'm sure they'll announce it when the time is right. Excellent. 
And uh, where can people find you online if they want to keep apprised of all your goings on in Star Trek and otherwise? I have been and always shall be at DaytonWard.com, at least as long as I remember to renew the the the, the, the domain registration. <laughs> um, and so you can find me there and it's my blog and my links. I have links to my Facebook page and my Twitter account and my Instagram account and whatever else is out there. Oh, Amazon. I think I have an Amazon author page out there. And I also have uh, um, like links to where I write for Star Trek.com, uh, which I've been doing pretty regularly now for the past several months. So yeah, they're keeping me pretty busy. Yeah. And I'm also looking forward to hearing you on that new podcast called positively Trek. That's going to be exciting. I've heard about it, but I don't know the guys. So I don't know if I want to do it. We'll find out. <laughs> well, well, we'll, we'll leave it well, at that. Yeah. though. <laughs> I hear they're really great though. I hear good things. <laughs> I hear things. I hear things. Well, I've just come back from uh, getting Dayton back set up in the green room. He's got his uh, bowl of green M&Ms there. So I think he's pretty happy uh, until the next time that the show takes him out to talk about a new novel. So uh, rest easy there, Dayton. We'll call on you when, you, when we need you again. <laughs> Thank you very much. You know, we have talked to Dayton several times, but it just really stood out to me this time how much he really does love Star Trek. Yes. Like, I really feel like he could eat, breathe Star Trek, drink it, whatever. I mean, he he really does love it and gets it. And I mean, so many of the authors do, but I just, I don't know, for some reason, it just really stood out to me this time. Yeah. The, you can tell the the look in his eyes and and... You know, usually we don't see him when we're recording this, but uh, this time around he has a new webcam. We got to see him. It was kind of cool to interact that way. And you can see his eyes just light up when he talks about Star Trek. And, and you know, we, of course, talk on the other side of the page about things other than the novels. And he loves this stuff. He is someone that we are just so lucky to have creating new Star Trek for us to enjoy because that joy just shines through in everything that he does. Yes. Well, it's been fun talking about Dayton's eyes today, but it's not the only <laughs> thing we've been discussing here on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Literary Treks. Not wanting to be spoiled about this book, I would suggest then not listening now, read the book, and then come back later. And then you can enjoy the whole freaking feature of this glorious analysis that we're going to give this. I shot JR. Sorry, I, I thought we were getting into spoilers. My, my bad. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just, like, woke up from a dream. I was in the shower. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> the orb. But if you think about the fact that Cisco is with the Prophets at this time, and Section 31 is going to try to kill the Prophets, maybe that's a way for Cisco to re-enter the story and play his role in representing the Prophets to overturn what Section 31 is trying to do and to champion that idea of Druidic and, and end the season with that message that religion is fine for those who want to believe it, and it's also fine for you not to believe it. Earl Grey. One of my notes I made on this episode is that Riker is a cosplayer. He likes to put on the native costumes of the planets he goes to. Yes. 
you in. I have started making a, a Riker Angel One cosplay. Ewan <laughs> you you wants it for SLBs. So. Nice. Yes! That was one of my notes as well, was Riker's left nipple. <laughs> Doesn't leave much to the imagination, but yeah. To the journey! Quick snap poll. Suzanne, would you prefer Neelix yes. to cook for you or Chell? Chell. Chell? Zach, Neelix or Chell? Neelix. Oh. <laughs> oh. I see Leola root in your future. <laughs> Lots of it. Oh, yeah. Give me those exotic ingredients. Yes. Chell is my man. I mean, you can have... With Chell, you can get, like, all those puns food items that he made. <laughs> exactly, it would be like Bob's Burgers in space. <laughs> wow. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, though, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, Spotify... Spotify... Jesus... How many times have I said this word and I can't... Okay. Spotify in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. Do you want me to do that that whole thing again in case that doesn't match up right? If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week... I'm laughing at Dan. He's making a face at me. <laughs> <laughs> no, wait, I'm going if you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. Available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place, of course, is to join in the larger conversation on the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group on Facebook, and we'll read your comments at the top of the show for the previous week's episode. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and that'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trekfm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. Find us on our Goodreads group where we have bookshelves with all our previously covered books as well as the currently reading section so you know what is coming up for future shows. Plus, great conversations happening about the books and comics. Just search for literary treks on Goodreads, and click Join Group. We'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shane Mutala, Justin Ozer, Jeffrey Harlan, and Casey Pettit for their support of the Trek FM network and being associate producers for literary treks as well. So Dan, when you're not wearing the same shirt for 20 years like Sulu does, where can people find you? 
<laughs> well, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats, K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Kurtrats47. You can find me on YouTube at youtube.com slash Productions. You can find me in the Babel Conference, usually lurking, but sometimes commenting. And of course, you can find me and Bruce on Positively Trek, our newish Star Trek podcast. <laughs> and Bruce, when you're not training undercover agents to infiltrate the Klingon Empire, where can we find you? You won't be able to because I'll be in disguise. Oh, you got me there. <laughs> but you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. That's Admiral with the underline Rex. And uh, you can find me, of course, wherever Dan is. And then you can also find me on the Star Wars report occasionally. I uh, just recently did an episode and I will be doing some solo episodes towards the end of July. I'm helping the show out there. So, so are these these episodes about solo the movie or... No, but that's a good idea. I will. Uh, they will be solo shows about solo. There you go. <laughs> Maybe I'll do something like that. That's not a bad idea, actually. So anyway, thanks everyone for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.